1 Peter 1 verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So I wonder if you've ever given much thought to the way that you, you and I go on a journey. One thing most journeys have in common is that there's a destination, a place that we're trying to get to. And the destination very much shapes the way that we go about a journey. So just think about your commute, uh, maybe to work or to university or to school. We do the same journey pretty much every day. The same route is pretty dull, pretty boring. And so we're not really paying much attention. Maybe there's a time that we've got to get in by, so there's a little bit of urgency. But other than that, we're just kind of cruising. Uh, maybe even dozing off if you're on the bus. Okay, not if you're driving. But if you're on the bus, maybe dozing off, daydreaming on the way. Because we're just going to work. We're just going to school. But now think about a different journey. Think about going on holiday, which is not, by the way, where I'm going this week. Uh, I don't like sand and sun anyway. But you're going on holiday. There is excitement and anticipation. Uh, you prepare and you pack. You plan your itinerary. You plan your route. You maybe dress for the occasion. I think when you go on holiday, uh, you've got to dress up, flowery shirt, shorts, that kind of thing. You've got to get into the gear, even as you set off. Maybe you listen to holiday music in the car. You anticipate exploring the hotel or the cottage or the campsite that you're going to be staying on. You're alert and expectant about where you're going. And the Christian life is a lot like a journey as well. A journey to a most glorious destination. And in our passage this morning, Peter is going to begin to tell us how we as Christians are meant to conduct ourselves on the journey that we're on. Like most journeys, the way that we travel is going to be determined by the destination that we're heading to. Thanks, John. In fact, remembering our destination, we're going to see, is absolutely key to all that Peter is going to go on to tell us. And it all begins, you probably spotted it as we started to read, with a therefore in verse 13. And you've probably heard the, uh, the, 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 the sort of the classic rule. When you see a therefore in the Bible, you ask, what's it there for? And it's a word that points us back. In this case, Peter begins by wanting to point us back to verses 1 to 12. The therefore tells us that Peter's letter can't just be picked up and read from verse 13 onwards, as if that was where it all started. If we do that, we get into all sorts of trouble. We're going to see that in a, in a few minutes, we're going to see that there is a way that as Christians, we ought to live the Christian life. There are things that God commands us to do as we journey through life. That's what Peter's going to go on to begin to explain from verse 13. But God's commands always come rooted in his grace. It's a bit like when you buy a plant from a garden center. You, you, you pick up the plant and it's in a pot of soil. It's planted in the soil. It always comes with some life-giving soil. And when you go to the till, unless it's a really awful garden center, uh, the cashier doesn't wrench the plant out of the soil and kind of give you a handful of broken and dead leaves. No, they give you it soil and all. In the same way, changed lives always grow 
out of the soil of God's gracious saving work. God's commands always come rooted in the soil of his saving grace. Otherwise, we've just got dead works. So, what particular soil is Peter pointing us back to with this word, therefore? Well, in verses 1 to 12, let me just remind us. Peter has been celebrating all that God has freely done for us in Christ. He began right back in the beginning by reminding his Christian readers that we have been chosen by the Father, washed clean in the blood of Jesus, born again and set apart by the Holy Spirit. Then he pointed us to our future inheritance, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, which means basically that it's just mind-blowingly good and will never cease to be mind-blowingly good even when we've We've held it in our hands for 10,000 years. He also made clear that our inheritance is a gift of mercy. We didn't earn it. We didn't pay for it. We don't deserve it. It was given to us according to God's great mercy. And then Peter reassured us that, that uh, God is guarding it, both our inheritance and us, until the day comes for us to receive it. And even now, while we wait for it, Sometimes in the midst of trials and hardships, God is with us, strengthening and refining our faith, creating within us a joy in Jesus that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So in summary, where we've been so far, we've seen that God has done everything necessary to save us. He is doing everything necessary to keep us, and we are on a journey to a glorious destination. And in view of all of that, therefore, says Peter, here's how we ought to live and act on that journey. In verses 13 to 16, Peter gives us two things that we ought to do in the Christian life as we journey towards our destination. He's going to tell us much more as the letter unfolds in future weeks, but he begins with two things. We need to look forward and look up simple as that this morning we need to look forward and look up on this journey towards our glorious inheritance God calls us to look forward and to look up so first of all that's our two points for this morning first of all look forward verse 13 let's read that again therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ so God has promised us a glorious inheritance in Jesus. He's told us our destination, and now he simply calls us to fix our hope on it, to trust that God will deliver the future that he's promised. And more than that, he says we're to set our hope on it fully. We're to, you might say we're to set our hearts on it. Not just agreeing that, yes, we believe God is going to do what he says he'll do, but longing for that future, making it our treasure, orienting our lives even now around what surely awaits us at the end of the journey. It's a bit like preparing for a wedding. Just imagine if you, uh, you met a guy or a girl, a man or a woman, uh, who was engaged to be married, but who doesn't want to do anything to prepare for the wedding. You know, perhaps they don't want to set a date. They don't want to think about what they're going to wear. They, they don't want to book a venue. 
They don't want to spend time with their fiance. They don't want to think about it. They're just resigned to the fact, okay, it's going to happen. Got to get married. It's on the horizon. The day's going to come. But until that day, they just want to live like it's not happening. <laughs> what would we think? We'd think, this person, I, I, I don't think they're very excited about getting married. I don't think they're head over heels in love with their fiance. We'd think they actually preferred their old way of life to this new one that awaits them in the future. But unfortunately, for me at least, too often, that's how my life looks with regards to Jesus' return. Day to day, it's just so easy to live lives that are consumed by other hopes and priorities. Things that often seem in the moment more important, more vital than our future with Jesus. Now, sometimes, in, uh, in rarer occasions, these things that we hope in can become bigger than Jesus. They can be, we, can, we can come to put our ultimate hope in something other than Jesus. We, we might come to bank all of our hope on a new spouse or a promotion at work or an education or a medical procedure. We may come to look as, at this new thing as the only thing that will get us through life's challenges. And when that happens, we literally divert our hope away from Jesus to these other things. And that, of course, can be deadly, deadly for us. But much more commonly, the reason I think that we struggle to obey verse 13, particularly that word fully, it's a key word there, the reason we struggle to obey that word fully is just that we're so prone to being distracted from hoping in Christ and his return. Not, not completely diverted, but definitely distracted. And I, for one, I don't know about you, but I, for one, am an expert in filling my life with distractions. Okay, it's like I've got a PhD in this. Oh, there's another TV series that I can watch. Oh, there's another book I can read, uh, another hobby I can take up, another interest, another website, another gadget, another something to pass the time. It's a bit like that thing you do, you know when you go with kids on a long journey, maybe especially on a walk, and because it's a long way and they're perhaps complaining already and they can't see the destination, you start to say to them, well, just Let's focus on that next tree down there. Okay, we'll get to the tree. And then, there's, and then now the lamppost. We're trying to get to the lamppost. And then the post box. And, and so you go landmark by landmark. Just focus on reaching the next sign. Now, it's not a bad thing to do on a walk with our kids. I think it's a really good parenting tactic. But it's not a good thing, not a good pattern for us to follow in the Christian life. Because the journey that we're on is all about our final destination. It's meant to be shaped by where we're going. That's the thing that's meant to motivate us, says Peter, seeing the goal. It's the thing that's meant to steer us as we walk. I don't know if you've ever done this thing where you try and walk across a big open field, but you deliberately don't look at the, perhaps the gate on the other side where you're going. Yeah, you've done this? Maybe, just me. It's kind of fun. Uh, so maybe you look at your feet or you deliberately kind of look to the side, but, but try it sometime. You don't look at the, the destination across the field. It is amazing how hard it is to walk in a straight line. It's quite disorienting. I, for one, get a little bit dizzy as I've tried it sometimes. Many of the things that have the potential to distract us as we journey through life aren't bad things. Many of them are good gifts from God 
but they will lead us astray. They'll lead us on a wonky journey. They'll lead us all over the place if we let them distract us from our ultimate hope that is Jesus. I'll just give you a little bit of an example, a bit of a confession from my own life. Uh, it struck me particularly this week in thinking about these things. Uh, I've been trying this year, this last six months, to think more a little bit about health and fitness. Not a bad thing, I hope. I think it can be well motivated to want to steward the bodies that we're given so that we can serve God for longer and serve him more energetically. But it's amazing how quickly your life, my life, can get preoccupied with these things, with what I'm thinking about what I'm eating or thinking about how many calories I'm burning or thinking about what new exercises I can try. And before we know it, this small thing on the journey, even this good thing, becomes the main focus of the journey. Now, if you ask me, is this your ultimate hope in life and death? Is this what you're putting your hope in now? Of course, I say no. Is this my utmost priority day to day? No, Jesus is my number one passion. But these other things can become like pseudo priorities. They can distract me from Jesus, distract me from his church, distract me from serving my family, distract me from witnessing to my neighbors. They just have the potential to consume too much of my time or my money or my focus, even when I never intended them to become the thing that my life was about. Now, don't mishear what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we should avoid them all. Many of them are good gifts from God, meant for our enjoyment and even our benefit. But we just need to be careful that they don't become the main thing. They don't become the thing that our eyes are fixed on. Here's a helpful test. Ask yourself, where is my time my money, my thought life being spent day to day. Because, you know, those things are all in limited supply, aren't they? We, we only have so much time. We only have so much money. There's only, only so many things that we can think about in any given 24 hours. And if we spend in one place, we can't spend it in another. That's just good budgeting. Where am I allowing even things that are good to push out that which is best and ultimate? To what things do I give more focus and attention and money and time than to fixing my eyes on Jesus and living for his return? Now, Peter gets that this isn't easy. I don't think this is easy. Peter knows it takes effort. And so he gives us two accompanying instructions for how we're to set our hope in Jesus. He's going to give us some help. First of all, he says, preparing your minds for action look at that in verse 13 preparing your minds for action which literally means in the greek to gird it says to gird up the loins of your mind kind of a funny saying i know but what he's doing is painting a picture of a person preparing to run or do some exercise and in peter's day uh, men uh, would wear long flowing robes that kind of went down towards their ankles uh, there were no skinny jeans, as far as I know. And so when the time came to run or to fight or to go to work on something, the first thing you had to do was to gird up the, the flowing robes around you. You had to gird them up and tuck them into your belt to get ready for action. 
And that, says Peter, is a picture of what we must do with our minds each day if we want to run the Christian race well. We've got to prepare our minds for action. We've got to get them into gear. We've got to get out of neutral. We've got to put on the running shoes of our minds and prepare for sustained mental exertion. A lot like it tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, there we go, that's where our eyes are to be fixed, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We're to intentionally, every day, fill our minds with where we're going and to look forward to the joy that is set before us by fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's what it means to be preparing our minds for action. And at the same time, Peter says that we're to be sober-minded, which doesn't simply mean don't get drunk on alcohol. It means don't get drunk on the world around us. Uh, One commentator, Tom Schreiner, says something I think particularly thought-provoking when he writes, there is a way of living that becomes dull to the reality of God, that is anaesthetized by the attractions of this world. There is a way of living that becomes dull to the reality of God that is anaesthetized by the attractions of this world. Meaning that if we drink in this world 24-7, glued to our TVs or our phones, immersed in social media all the time, in news sites, in politics, in the world of sports and entertainment, it will inevitably make us drowsy towards God. When we get drunk on the world, it will dull our affections for God. It, It weakens our worship. We lose sight of just how good it is that Jesus is coming back, and we just end up focusing on mundane earthly things haven't we all experienced that the dulling effect when we immerse ourselves in the world so you see these two things work together we're to be sober-minded not intoxicated or dulled by the mindset of the world and we're to prepare our minds for action to intentionally fill our minds with the hope the glorious hope that is ours in jesus Just think for a minute about healthy living. No one who's resolved to get healthier, who wants to feel stronger and more energetic and just a bit more alive in the morning, no one commits themselves to eating uh, lean meat and fruit and veg and at the same time gorges on fast food and sweets and mountains of cake. We have mountains of cake later on, but that's a free pass on a Sunday. But nobody does that normally. You don't commit to a healthy diet and then gorge yourself on fast food and cakes as well. If you're looking to get healthy, we make wise choices about what we will eat and at the same time, we make wise choices about what we won't eat. And in the same way, we need to be wise as Christians about what we do fill our minds with, starting with a healthy diet of God's word and then, uh, as it says in Philippians 4 verse 8, then anything else that's true and honorable and pure and lovely and good and we need to be equally wise about what we won't fill our minds with things that are untrue dishonorable impure ungodly and bad 
And this all takes resolve and effort and intentionality in what we give our minds to. But it's so worth it if we can just sober ourselves up enough to see it. Just, just let's stop for a moment and consider the goodness of what God is calling us to do here in verse 13 with this call to look forward to what lies ahead. He doesn't say, I've made you some great and glorious promises for the future, okay? Promises beyond your wildest dreams, but right now I want you to give your attention to something miserable and meaningless and boring. No, on the contrary, he says, I've made you these glorious promises. And now I want you to look forward to it, to fill your vision with it, to set your hope fully on the grace that will be yours at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, I want you to experience here and now the incomparable joy of running towards this with all of your might, setting aside all distractions, not robbing yourself of this joy that lies ahead, and bringing other people with you even as you journey on the way to this most dazzling inheritance. Look forward to something magnificent, says Peter. Jesus is coming back for you. So we're to look forward. And secondly, this morning we see Peter tells us to look up. In verses 14 to 16, not only are we to look forward, setting our eyes on our destination, but we're also to look up to fix our eyes on God here and now, to be holy as he is holy. To be holy as he is holy. That's the, that's the main exhortation now in verses 14 to 16. Be holy in all your conduct. And to help us understand it, Peter sets us up with a bit of a contrast. He says, don't be this, but be this. Okay, it's helpful. Don't be this, but be this. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Instead, be holy in all your conduct. His point is this. There was a time once when we did not know God. A time once when we were separated from him. We had no relationship with him. And our lives were shaped by our ignorance of him. That's who we were. That's who we were. But it's not who we are anymore. By God's mercy, we this morning, if we're Christians, are no longer ignorant of God. We know God personally. We've been made his children. We've been welcomed into his family and therefore into a whole new way of life. And so, with such a change of status and position, it's just absurd to think that we would carry on living just as we did before. I saw in the news, I think it was earlier this week, there was much uproar and joking uh, about uh, Meghan Markle, obviously now has become a member of the royal family, and there was questions over whether it was appropriate for her to close her car door. Apparently she's been caught at least twice on camera, uh, being let out of her car, but closing her own car door. And so there's been uh, uproar and debate as to whether this fits in with how a royal should behave. And I, I think actually they've decided it's kind of a grey area in the book of royal etiquette. <laughs> I'm sure she's pleased. But now that Meghan is a member of the royal family, some things have become definite no-nos for her. 
She's got some, some set rules. There's no more selfies, no more autographs. She can't vote. And all her public social media has to be deleted. She must conduct herself in these things according to her new identity as a member of the royal family. Now, I don't know how hard she finds it. I kind of I sympathize with her. I feel for her. But maybe it's starting to come naturally to her now. But Peter is clear that for the Christian, proper conduct doesn't just come automatically, naturally, not yet. We can't live the Christian life on autopilot. Yes, we've been rescued and redeemed. A marvelous inheritance lies ahead of us. But in the meantime, the Christian life is a battle. It's never passive. A war is raging. Ungodly desires, old temptations still beckon us to turn back, to turn from God, to turn and go back to the way things were. Sometimes it's not even just the temptations to go back to old habits from the past either. Sometimes amidst new pressures and new trials, we can be tempted to compromise in ways that perhaps we never felt drawn to in the past. Losing our temper, drinking too much, using crude language, gossiping, criticizing, coveting, loving money, seeking acclaim and recognition, whether, whether they're old desires that are resurfacing from the past or, or whether they're brand new ones that just seem to be forming in, the, in the, the furnace of life in the present, God's command in verse 14 is clear. Don't be conformed to those passions anymore. Turn your back on them. Put them away. Leave them behind. They're a part of who you once were. Now, instead, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Which is a mind-blowing alternative. It's, a, it's kind of a familiar verse, isn't it? And that, this sort of pops up all over the place in the Bible, and so we get used to it. But if we, if we really take it in afresh, what, what's being said here in verse 15, it, it should leave us a little bit shell-shocked. Proper conduct for us as Christians begins with the very holiness of God. With a be holy as God is holy. And amidst all that God has revealed about himself in the Bible, his holiness stands head and shoulders above uh, everything else. No characteristic is more prominent or significant than his holiness. God is set apart from all else. He alone is the uncreated one who dwells in unapproachable light. And his perfect character sets the standard for what is good and morally right. He's not warlike or spiteful or bloodthirsty like some of the, the Roman gods would have been at the time that Peter was writing. No, he's a God of mercy and of justice. He is holy and he expects his children to bear the family resemblance, to be holy as he is holy. Ed Clowney writes, we are to be imitators of God as beloved children, holy as he is holy, perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. On the one hand, this seems to set an impossible standard. How can we be like the holy God? On the other hand, there is a marvelous simplicity in a holiness patterned on God himself. 
It doesn't require an encyclopedic grasp of endless directives and prohibitions. It flows from the heart. Its key is love. To be holy is to love the Lord our God with heart, soul, strength and mind and to love our neighbour as ourselves. It's wonderfully simple and all-encompassing, this command to be holy as God is holy. Not complicated, don't need a special degree. Simple, all-encompassing and yet Surely nothing reminds us of our need for a saviour more than the call to be holy as God is holy. More than this call to love God with all of our hearts. Nothing, I think, reminds us more of our need for a saviour. And Peter doesn't want us to forget for an instant that this command again comes planted in the soil of God's grace. Woven all throughout chapter 1 is this reminder that we are saved, not according to what we do, not according to our works and our efforts, but according to God's great mercy. God's saving work in Christ. His gifts of forgiveness, new life, redemption, adoption, relationship with him. All these things always come before the commands to be holy. These gifts come before the commands to live differently, to put away ungodliness, always. They always come first. Nothing could be more important than to understand this this morning. And so in verse 15, Peter reminds us that we have been called by God. We've been called. We were called while we were yet sinners. While we were enemies of God, he called us out of the dominion of darkness into his wonderful light. That's in chapter 2, verse 9. He called us to faith in his Son. God has already, before this command comes to us, already drawn us out from millions lost, drawn us out and set us apart for himself if we're Christians here this morning. He has set us apart to be holy. He has declared us holy. In verse 14, Peter tells us that the, this call now to practical holiness is the call to be obedient children, to bear the family likeness. And it's a likeness that can only begin to be possible because we've already been reborn into God's family. David Helm says, if God is not your father, i.e. if you have not trusted in Christ this morning to cover your sins through his death on the cross, if God is not your father, living a holy life will be impossible because holy conduct is the fruit of being a member of his family. We simply don't possess the power to do so from our own genes or heritage. So if you've not put your hope, all of your hope in Christ this morning to save you from your sins, don't go home from here this morning and start to try and make yourself holy as if you can make yourself acceptable to God. No, none of us are found acceptable to God unless we've trusted in his son and been clothed in his righteousness. So you start with Jesus. But once we're saved, once God is our father and Jesus is our savior, we can know with certainty that God is for us, not against us, when he gives us commands like this one verses 13 to 16. 
He is at work in us, his children, by his spirit now to help us put off the old and put on the new. He is helping us to put away old sinful behavior and put on holy conduct. He is committed to continuing the work that he has started in us because we are his beloved children. In light of all that then, what should we do? What should we do? We should now pursue holiness in every sphere of life. I couldn't help noticing this week, uh, try as hard as I might, that this command to be holy embraces all of life. There's no clauses, there's no footnotes, no extra comments in the margin defining the limits of where we need to strive for holiness in our conduct. It doesn't say that this just really applies on Sundays or when we're with other Christians, or when circumstances make it easy. This is a call to pursue holiness all the time, in every place, in every circumstance, wherever we are, whoever we're with. And it's a call to pursue holiness in all our conduct. There's no pass card, no get-out-of-jail-free card that says so long as you watch your language and control your temper it doesn't matter if you drink too much or so long as you serve people and encourage them when you're with them it doesn't matter if you gossip about them behind their backs it doesn't say to us as husbands so long as you don't flirt with other women and you love your wife sacrificially it doesn't matter if you look at pornography from time to time Peter's words don't allow for any exceptions it's a simple all-embracing truly challenging command and one which we will fall short of every single day of our lives but it's what we're meant to strive for as obedient children can we be perfectly holy in all of our conduct now no not a chance not until jesus returns but having been saved can we live lives that are distinctly marked by a pursuit of holiness clearly that is peter's expectation for his readers that we would live lives that are distinctly marked by a pursuit of holiness a desire to live holy lives and once again let's not miss that we are being called to a good and beautiful thing here we're being called to be holy as god is holy that that's not bad news and boredom that is freedom and life it's what we were made for we were made in God's image right back in the very beginning to love like God loves to love what God loves to love and enjoy God himself by striving to keep his commands Jesus said didn't he if you love me you'll obey my commands in fact, the New Testament is never shy about giving us specific instructions for how we're to conduct our lives. The gospel that saved us once and for all is also intended to progressively transform us day by day. Peter's going to go on to give us uh, all kinds of specific examples of what it looks like to live holy and set apart lives for God, especially in an ungodly and hostile world. But here at the start of these exhortations, just in our verses this morning, 
he's most intent on reminding us of who we're imitating. Not so much what we're to do, that comes later, but he wants to remind us of who we're imitating. He wants to point us upward to God. And I think there's a reason for that, one which brings us perhaps nicely to a close this morning. The reason is this. Practical holiness begins with looking up and fixing our eyes on the God who is holy. In the end, we become what we behold. We become what we behold. We become what we most love and fix our eyes upon. And that's why Peter wants us to look up and fix our eyes on the one who is so utterly holy. In 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, the Apostle Paul says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We all, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. Step by step, bit by bit, often it feels so slowly, backwards and forwards sometimes, but we are being transformed into his image as we behold the glory and the holiness of the Lord. So this morning, let's look up. And every morning, let's gaze upon the glory of the Lord. Let's work with all of our mental might to fix our eyes on his goodness and his holiness. And in so doing, we will be transformed from one degree of glory to another. And as we look up, let's remember as well to look forward towards our glorious destination, towards our saviour, the lover of our souls, who is coming back to claim his bride. Let's set our hope fully on the grace that will be ours when he returns to take us home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you this morning that as you invite us, call us to look forward and look up. Lord, what we see when we look forward is an inheritance that you have purchased for us at the price of your son's own blood. Lord, we see a future that is ours because of your grace and your mercy to us. And it is a glorious future. Lord, we thank you that as we look up and see you in all of your holiness, because of Jesus, we don't have to cower back in fear, but we can approach you to worship and enjoy you and to find help in our time of need. Lord, we pray, would you help us to do these things, to look forward and to look up increasingly in our Christian lives. And Lord, as we see you and see Jesus, we pray that you would transform us into your likeness from one degree of glory to another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.